But this country is in a place where we don't know right from wrong and we don't know how to love one another. And everything has been placed into a blender and pushed frappe. It is a mixture of a civic and social damage that's been done to one another from our institutions, a mistrust of politicians from the media, from our neighbors to that group that we say, this one I can trust, this news media I can trust, that one I can't trust. We're making the boundaries and distinctions and a kind of a tribalism. My tribe and I, we know what's right from wrong, so we'll decide according to our own values. That is the voice of Dr. Chris Coppinall, Associate Director of Community Formation, Asbury Theological Seminary. He joins me today to discuss belonging, community formation, and reconciliation. You're listening to the podcast with John C. Lemon. Dr. Kopenal, welcome. Thank you very much, John. It's an honor to join you today. You discussed in a lecture shared with me last year the unfortunate event of your physical assault. That horrific incident led you on a journey that brought you to where you are today. Could you share that journey with us? The year was 1990, and some college friends and I, young people that we were, were having a nice evening in a safe area of Ann Arbor, Michigan, in a city park, uh, having conversation and stargazing and enjoying ourselves when we suddenly looked up and we were surrounded by a large gang of people. They drew a gun. It was very scary. It was chaotic. The sense of losing control over your life, that agency to decide what you will do, it just frozen for us. The armed robbery escalated, spiraled out of control and became an assault. And while I was unconscious, this group continued to strike me in the head, face and neck and chest. And I woke up in the emergency room of the University of Michigan Hospital And the first really conscious memory was the ER attending physician saying, I'm surprised to see you alive. I watched as your friends rolled you through the front door and I thought you were already dead. It would take months for my wounds and lacerations, the bruises and broken bones to heal. And it would take years before the shame of an attack like that would go away, the post-traumatic stress disorder to disappear. Uh, It hasn't completely, but it was an incredibly traumatic event. And I took away two things from this story that I have not told in 30 years. I've never told anyone until this last year. And this is why I share this story, John. The first is forgiveness, because I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, and Christ commands us to forgive others for their sins against us, And in my case, even a sin of a brutal attack that nearly took my life. And the other takeaway from this, and I want to share this with some sensitivity, is the group of people who attacked my friends and I were a different race, a different skin color than me. And so, of course, I'll never know, John, but I have, given the times we live in, 
considered the possibility that that attack was racially motivated. And that is a whole different kind of forgiveness. But because of my faith, I felt compelled to follow the command of Christ and forgive others for this attack. And I want to share that story because I think it's a good place for a conversation in a turbulent times that we live in in our country to say there is a pathway through the darkness of the times we live in. If we will stop and consider a moment the peace that Christ wants to bring to the hearts of every person in his creation. What are the steps to forgiveness? Where do you begin? The first step to forgiveness is to be open to wanting to forgive. Because many people say, I might forgive one day, but I'm not there today. Not even close. I don't even want to think about it. It is completely distasteful. Because some people think that forgiveness means taking a situation that is so indefensible and saying, don't worry about it. It's no big deal. And that's not what forgiveness is. So being step one is to be open to forgive someone, even if your emotions aren't ready. Step two is to realize that when Christ forgives us for our sins, something that's absolutely necessary for us to live in community with him and have right relationship with him and ultimately live with him in paradise forever, in heaven forever, requires the forgiveness that he alone can give to us. We're actually saying something deeply theological, which is, I'm just like those who pull the gun on me. I've never robbed anyone at gunpoint. I've never robbed anybody. I've committed plenty of other sins, John. I'm guilty of those. So if I make distinction between those are the bad guys, John, I'm the good guy. I was the victim in this. In this situation, I believe that's true. But in other situations, I've played the opposite role, not violently, but the person who hurt others through my selfishness, my pride, my anger, and other sins that I would commit. So when I realize that I'm like them and that I need the love of Christ and his forgiveness, then I can comply with his command and say, uh, men, and there were women as well, you are forgiven for this sin of a violent attack against me and my friends. When we consider the idea of forgiveness, we believe or at least wrestle with the idea that it's not that big of a deal. More theologically sound, God's grace is that more significant. It is a big deal, but the grace of God is a bigger deal. And I think that we need to spend more time emphasizing that. Yeah, absolutely. A lifetime, a lifetime. Could you speak to the significance of belonging? We have this strange propensity of uh, categorizing those around us. Some people will say it's very important whether an American is from the North or from the South. That's a very important distinction. Northerner, Southerner, those are different. Some will make a distinction with age. Uh, one is old and the other is young, and they're two different camps. You're in one or the other, and one is our camp and one is the other's camp. There are some that we say, this is an insider, and that person we say they're an outsider. Some that we draw close into our lives, those people and friends are sacred to us, and others we keep at arm's length. They are outsiders. They're outside the fold. And all comes down to some that we embrace in our lives. They, they matter. They have value. And there are some that we exclude. And that is a powerful feeling when we label someone else the other. 
They are the other, John, and they are not worthy of our care. Me and my friends and my loved ones, we matter. When you're on the powerful side making the judgments, those decisions seem right. It's when we're on the receiving end of that level of rejection that we feel it stings so deeply to be dismissed as a human being, to be devalued. If that has happened to you at any time in your life, you know how deeply those cuts lacerate the very core of your identity. And the sense of what it means to belong is to reach past those who are different, to reach past those that we would label our close, valuable community and extend our sphere of care to those who are, in fact, different than us. Tribalism is very important to recognize that that's what we're seeing. I'm right. You're wrong. If we could just find a way to reconcile that's a word I know that you could take off on and and speak to. How do we begin to do that? There's a child welfare advocate, and her name is Amelia Frank Meyer. She talks passionately about children in foster care. There's quite a lot of research about ability of an infant to thrive if it is left in the crib unattended. Those babies very often die from lack of, of attention and care. But if someone will come up and pick them up, they'll do better than uh, no one picking them up. But what research has shown is it actually has to be the same person who picks up that baby because a bond is created most often between a mother and child, but a father and child, a loved one who's there regularly. Because what is happening with the baby is that baby needs to be claimed by someone to feel secure and to thrive in its health. And that doesn't change when we become older. We still feel vulnerable in lots of ways. COVID has taught us we feel vulnerable and we need our neighbors and we need our friends and our relationships and we need the reciprocity of exchanging social value, grace, love, and other necessary components of a relationship with one another. Here's the thing. If a group of people in this country does not feel claimed by other citizens, if they feel the sting of rejection, the same principle applies. You'd have a sense of living in your country in it. And I'm going to try to say this is what I reason to be the Black experience based on Black friends who told me, based on Black colleagues who speak on this, and based on very intelligent people in the media and from just regular life who have watched on the internet tell me their stories, is they feel a sense of rejection and pushed away by their country in many ways, as if they're not even claimed by the nation, many of whom could trace a lineage back 400 years in this country. Whose country is it if your ancestry has been here for 400 years? And so the work that has to be done is to say, we claim you, you are us. We have differences, but differences aren't the problem, John. Mm -hmm. The difference is, and this is according to one of my favorite theologians, Miroslav Volf, problem isn't our differences. It's when we push one another outside the sphere of care, because we're saying, you don't matter and you don't have any value to me. When something happens to you that's devastating your life, I don't have an interest in it. Differences don't bring us there. What brings us there is a sense of the rejection and not the claiming of those who are different. Where do we begin to build community and community formation How do we repent of pushing people outside the sphere of belonging? 
here's the, an answer. And I'm used to pastoring in New York where there's many people, even in the congregation who might not be Christians and may not be familiar with this context. So I just, I'll just tell you what, what Jesus said in his most famous statements. They're from something called the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus in this will say things like, if you only love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Uh, he's describing something called natural love. I like people who like me. I like people who make me happy. I like my family members. I like my friends. I like my sports team. I like what I like, but that's just natural love. We've all got that. Jesus says, even sinners do this. And the implication is to love people that you don't naturally love. And love doesn't mean affection. Like I love caramel ice cream. I love pepperoni pizza. That's not the kind of love. Love is an action step where you take concern for another person. And Jesus said, and if you're a Christian, listen to this. The teachings of Jesus Christ is if you just love those that you naturally love, what good is that? You need to step beyond the human love into divine love. Okay, what's divine love? Divine love is defined by Paul when he said, God demonstrated his own love for us while we were still sinners. And when you think of the word sinners, think wicked. Think of some time in your life where you have told a lie where you have misled someone, you have betrayed a friend, you have done something you truly do not feel good about. While you were that person and, and separate from God, right? That is not the same as divine godly holiness. At that stage in who you are, Jesus dies for you. That's his demonstration of what divine love is. He doesn't die because we're he's fond of us. He's we're good people and we've met his standards. We're the exact opposite, but he demonstrates divine love to die for those unworthy. And then he says to the Christian community, so if you're a Christian, think about this a little bit, follow my direction and love the way that I love. How do we build community? By loving those who are different from us. And very often in my experience, John, we find a lot of similarity behind the stereotypes. But you get past that, you see people with our frailties, our passions, our care for one another, our desire for a better country, our, our, our desire to be good, moral beings who make choices that benefit those around us. We want to see amending to this world. Politics can't fix this, and the corporations can't fix this, and the church appears to be a mess sometimes, John. Well, then I'm going to have to look in the mirror and turn to my friends uh, who are Christians and say, let's be examples of Christ and glorify him with our actions, even if they cost us something like pain or our lives. There's no greater love than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friend. That is, for some people would say, well, maybe that's a bridge too far. Uh, everybody has a choice, don't they? We yeah. can always turn a blind eye. In fact, I said to uh, some black friends of mine, there's not a racist bone in my body. You may believe that, you may not. It's not my interest. I don't think about it that way. I've never harmed anybody. Uh, I don't discriminate. A third of my neighbors are from different nations. We have dinner with each other. We have our children over. You can just take it for what it's worth, accept or reject it. But I still have to apologize to you and mm -hmm. to the black Americans in this country. You know why? 
because I saw you in pain year after year, John, and I didn't care. I wasn't doing it. I'm sorry for your situation was my attitude at the time. Maybe you should make different choices, John. Ever thought about that? I have to apologize for that because I saw you in pain, like the story of the Good Samaritan. And I walked to the other side of the road, John. That's all I did. I just ignored your pain. If that's something that's in your experience and in your life. And I don't want to do that anymore because it's not a biblical example. It's not what Christ would have us do. And it's dishonoring to God. It goes against New Testament teaching and Old Testament teaching multiple times over and over in scripture, particularly in the church where Paul describes us as one body. You cannot get more close to somebody than when you are one body. I'm a, I'm a left arm. You're a right arm, John. We're the same body. And when you hurt, I hurt. That's the definition of one body. As a member of the body, my interest is to care about you. And I haven't done that. And so I apologize. I've sinned against you, my brother. I believe that we are in need of such a response. The siege on the Capitol building on January the 6th, there were people flying flags that said Jesus. I believe that there needs to be a national response by Christians that say that is not godly. That is not of Christ. That is not what God will want us to do. And we repent. How appropriate a response would that be? The national repentance do this country from true Christians is a life turning over from our sins to live as closely in the sandals of Christ as we can. Uh, we, we don't take responsibility for other people's sins because we don't act as a monolithic group. We all decided at a one large group meeting what we were going to do, even though we weren't in the Capitol building. But for those who would say, I bear the banner of Christ, and he would have me tear into this national institute and uh, defame it, take a sacred place and cause it to be uh, made dirty by their presence and their actions, is to completely denounce that as not Christian behavior whatsoever. It has nothing to do with Christ. If you, a Christ follower, and your actions are representative of Christ, you would do nothing like that. You might start with prayer. You might start with uh, loving those who are different than you, and you might even speak out on difficult issues, but you are never as a Christian allowed to move to violence, destruction of property, destruction of sacred places that have deep meaning for an entire nation, no matter how angry we become about the and frustrated we are about the state of the country, we must lift up the ethics of Christian behavior because there is no one else to live by these standards, only Christians. And if you're not living to that ethical standard, you've fallen short, which is called sin. You've fallen short of representing Christ. You mentioned earlier that the first step in building community was to love those that are different from you. And once we dare to do that, we may find that we have similarities. What would be a second step? Uh, there's a famous musician who was locked out of a concert. Uh, it's a, the building that has sound check in the afternoon, and he has to come around to the front of the building to leave, be let back in. All the other doors are locked. And when he arrives at the front door, there's a security guard there, this you know enormous 
mountain of a man who doesn't recognize the performer. And in this song, it's by a, a folk classic Grammy-winning artist, Paul Simon. It's called, a song called Wristband. It sings this lyric that the security guard tells him. He says, uh, uh, you have to have a wristband, my man. You have to have a wristband. And if you don't have a wristband, my man, you don't get through the door. Right. And uh, I love that Paul Simon, with the poet's ear, recognized that that's not just his situation comedically in a, a being locked out of the theater, but that's actually the, the reality for many Americans who feel they have not been given the wristband not to enter into the concert hall, but into the arena of acceptance in this country. And I happen to be, I know this is a podcast, but I happen to be wearing a wristband. Yes. Part of me would love to manufacture about a million of these and give them away for free because each one of us, not just the majority race in this country, the United States, North America, and I know your podcast is heard outside of North America, but each one of us has the choice of who we will extend this wristband that allows a person entry into our lives, into our hearts into our sphere of care, and into the social rights due to each of us. We have the power to give that away to someone. So I think I would ask each of us listening today, to whom do you withhold the wristband of entry into your life that would allow them into the care and concern of your heart, energy, resources, and understanding to be claimed? Who have we rejected? Go back and embrace those people. Find out through fellowship, through community, that perhaps we're not as different as we were told that we were. Find a common ground. Build from there. Perhaps it sounds easier said than done. I think it's impossible. (laughs) Okay, so why talk about it? Because there's a pathway. And the pathway is if you are a Christian. That is how you identify. Then you are saying you are a, you're under someone's authority. I'm not in authority over God. Heaven forbid. God is an authority over me. And this is the very clear teaching, particularly of how one Christian should treat another Christian. If you take your faith seriously, this is a very challenging question. Am I willing to follow Christ in obedience as far as loving someone who is different than myself? And if the answer is yes, you're in agreement with Christ. And if the answer is no, you've rejected the teaching of Christ. Without Christ, I've got to tell you, John, I think it's impossible. With Christ, it's compulsory. Do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as ever you can. Uh, Someone emailed uh, me earlier, uh, late last year and said, you know, that quote is always attributed to John Wesley and it's not actually him. He didn't actually say it. So I performed a bit of research and it actually is a quote from John Wesley who wanted everyone in his home country of England and in the United States to hear about the love of Christ. When we come to faith in Christ, the lover of our souls and the creator of everything good we've ever experienced. When we lay our lives down and say, he is an authority, not me. And we believe in him and receive his salvation through the cross. We have a new, a new goal for our lives. And that's called 
to glorify him. We do that when we are similar in our actions. And Christ is all about loving other people at a great cost to himself when they're not deserving of that love. That is called the message of the cross that Paul talks about in a book called the First Corinthians, his first letter that he wrote to a church in Corinth that's uh, West Turkey 2,000 years ago. The message of the cross is none of us is worth it, but Christ did it anyway because he loved us and wants to be with us. And none of those political opponents that drive you nuts are worth it, John. Right. We're supposed (laughs) to love them anyway. Absolutely. And you'll find and experience peace in your own life as your just reward. God is glorified when we are similar in his actions. This challenge to differentiate what is real Christianity, what is not, is generational. What does history teach us about that? I was uh, reading a letter that William Wilberforce uh, had written. This would be the late 1700s in England. He was an abolitionist, and he uh, worked for over 20 years to end the slave trade in Great Britain, uh, which was finally passed resolution in 1833, just three days before Wilberforce died. But Wilberforce wrote a document where he explains, you know, there's Christianity, and then there's true Christianity, which is, you know, I can't sum it up in a few words, but it would be, first of all, God is sovereign over me, and I've surrendered my life to him, and then I'm living in imitation to him, the closest relationship I can have so that my character will be transformed from the old person I used to be with my selfish desires into a Christ-like creation who lives with the same level of holiness. Christ says, be holy for I'm holy. He says, be perfect as I'm perfect. He says, if you want to be my disciples, pick up your cross and follow me. And that follow me means to do those things we see Christ doing. If you're a friend of Christ, you will do what Christ does. It's the ethic of the kingdom of God, the ethic of heaven. Dr. Copenall, thank you for the rich and necessary conversation. I love the dialogue, John. I love your passions. Let's join together to see if we can't share the love of Christ with others who are different than us so we may find peace and sanity in our land. Dr. Chris Carpenal, Associate Director of Community Formation, Asbury Theological Seminary. For additional information on community formation, visit asburyseminary.edu. That's our podcast for today. I'm John C. Lemon. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next time.